Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're starting the second half of the book Fire on the Horizon, and this part of it is called The Heart of Atonement. And you give a little intro to kind of what we're going to be talking about overall, and I'll read that. You say, if God desires our love in return for his, then why did he block the way back to his presence by seraphim holding a sword? So that's referring to Adam and Eve, which we're going to talk about today. The story of human alienation and healing the broken relationship is at the center of Joseph Smith's view of atonement, for atonement is the way of being in the world that heals the broken relationship. It is the story of this breaking and healing that I want to tell here. So, kind of as a general intro to this half of the book, what else do you want to introduce before we get into this section? You know, at the very center of what is happening in our lives here is the notion that in order for us to be in a loving relationship, we have to be put at a cognitive distance from God so that we're in a position to freely choose a relationship because all relationships, if they're genuine relationships, have to be freely chosen. We're going to be taking and looking at the human condition through the optic of the story of Eden, which is pregnant with meaning for our human conditions. It's a very, very insightful look at what we're doing here, the kinds of persons that we are, the kind of tasks that we have set out for us, and precisely the kinds of foibles that we all have that will get in the way of us returning to God's presence. And when I say foibles, I'm, I'm you know, talking, of course, about the state of innocence in which Adam and Eve start out. Okay, makes sense. So yeah, that jumps into here. So again, both of these things that we talked about, the one about Joseph Smith before, and then this about the Heart of Atonement, they're both meditations on the temple endowment, and so that'll be very apparent starting with this next section here. So the title of it is, We Are All Adam and Eve. And I believe this is specifically referring to the temple endowment, but also to the actual story of Adam and Eve in general, because, at least from what I understand, though it's not ruled out that it could be referring to some actual historical event, the book of Genesis and the story of Adam and Eve is a certain genre, which it's supposed to be kind of an allegory for all of humanity. Yeah, in that regard, let me say that for the Hebrews, this would have been understood intentionally as more of a mythic allegory. And when I say mythic allegory, I don't mean false or untrue or even unhistorical. What it means is that it's a deeper look into the human condition. So there's this medieval story called Every Man. It has characters like virtue and truth. And if somebody were to ask you, well, did this character virtue actually exist? Did truth actually exist? I think you'd look at him and say, I don't think you get what is going on in this story. Because the, you know what the characters are is an insight into these very types of ways of being and truths that exist for reality. It's the same in Hebrew thought, or especially in Hebrew thought. So Joseph Smith has this statement in the book of Moses that he says, um, Adam, which is many. So when we look at the name Adam, Adam is like the people playing truth or justice 
or virtue in this medieval story of every man, and that is the medi- the name of the medieval story is every man. But that's essentially what Adam means, or Hadam means in Hebrew. So Hadam is both a proper name, and it's also the generic meaning of humankind or mankind. It is also a play on words from Aduma, which means red clay in Hebrew. So we get the story of man being created from clay. And people who read this in Hebrew would have understood, oh, he's taken from the earth because he's Aduma. He's, he's red clay from the earth. He's also all humankind, so he's representative of all of us. We get the same kind of wordplay with the name E from the Hebrew Hava, which means essentially human life or basically also specifically the female nurturing nature of human life. And so when we call Eve the mother of all living, we're saying that literally Eve is in us as our mother of of all life. She is the source of that life. And so we get these kind of word plays in Hebrew, which are a very, very strong clue that the Hebrews understood this precisely to be the story of humankind and of, of our lives. That's what this story is about. All right, and yeah, and so you point out that for us to grasp the meaning of Joseph Smith's thought, we need to kind of understand that the story of Eden is the story of life for mankind. And we can see that being quite apparent because in Mormonism there are several accounts of the creation. We have the Genesis account, there's sort of an allusion to the Adam and Eve story in Second Nephi, and there's the book of Moses, and then there's the book of Abraham, and I, you know, and he returns to creation and this story of the fall of man, or just kind of the basic plan, over and over. And so it's central to what Joseph Smith is trying to convey to all of us. Yeah, and you have to ask yourself, okay, why all the different ways of telling this story with all these different nuances? And why in the endowment are we focusing on this story? What is it about this story that it warrants this kind of attention? And the fact is that the story doesn't warrant this kind of attention. It is that meaningful and has that much depth in terms of the play of meaning. It also is insightful. We see ourselves in the story of Adam and Eve if we begin to read it in a way that we see what the story is really saying about us. And so it warrants this kind of very close attention, not merely of scriptural exegesis. It's not merely a matter of analyzing this thing, but also of living with the story of enacting the story, because the story was, in fact, a drama. It was meant to be a play. It was meant to have characters. It was meant to be something that was a dramatic setup with a backdrop. And it's not just a story, it's also a drama. Yeah, so, and I'll read this quote, but it's back to what you said. It, it, Joseph Smith kind of recognized and was trying to convey that this story is more than just a story about other people, it's the story of us. It's a, an allegory for each of our lives, and we'll talk about how that is in a second here. And, and I want to emphasize also, for instance, go read Alma 41 and 42. In Alma 42, when Joseph Smith is using, this is long before he studied Hebrew, but the story in Alma 42, the word Adam is used interchangeably. It changes in its meaning from representing all of us to representing an individual. It's very clear that whoever wrote the story understood the play in this word from a Hebrew perspective. And so we get this kind of a recognition that this is the story of the meaning of our human lives. And Alma 42 ties it to the atonement in a way that is 
really insightful in my view. And so what we're going to do is take another look at this story again from a different perspective. Okay. Well, like I said, start out talking about the Adam and Eve part now. So there you say, the deep truth of the story of Adam and Eve, the person standing in the place of all humankind, is that we begin life already in God's presence. It is significant, therefore, that the first act of God after creating man and breathing life into him is to cause a deep sleep to come upon him. Equally important is the fact that the text never states that Adam wakes up. Life in this sphere of existence is a sleep and a dream in which we forget our true home. So with that, you're drawing a parallel to Joseph Smith's thought on a pre-existent life. For example, we all, you know, we're in the beginning with God, as it states, and that's a unique doctrine and teaching to Joseph Smith and Mormonism. But then we each chose to enter this life, and we have what's called the veil of forgetfulness, so that we don't remember what it was like before. And so I guess you could draw the comparison that when Adam goes to sleep, it's, it's comparable to this veil. And so they're both, that, that's how it's the story for all of us, at least to begin with. We're all in God's presence in the pre-existence, and then we're gaining knowledge of good and evil here. And so we all left, if you will, the Garden of Eden to come here. But I mean, we're going to explain that in a bit, but that's kind of where we're going. Yeah, and, and it focuses on this very deep fact, this deep reality about us. We are not humans having sometimes spiritual experiences. We are spirit beings having a human experience. And this world is not our home. In this home, we are strangers, and we find ourselves longing for something more, something where we know something's not quite right. We don't feel quite at ease here because it's not our true home. So you put, and I didn't quite understand what you meant by this, and I, th- I mean, I think I do, but I put a question. So you, s- you say there's only one place that Adam is commanded to awake and arise, and I'm guessing you mean with all of the different Adam and Eve stories in our scriptural canon, or not even the scriptural canon, but all in, you know, Elias tradition and thought. There's only one place where he's actually commanded to awake and arise, and you put, it is the one place we can go to truly wake up to our lives. And so I assume you're referring to the temple here, is that correct? Yeah, and you can draw whatever meaning you want out of that, but it is extremely significant that in the text Adam is put to, put asleep, and it's no mere oversight. Adam remains asleep. This, this life is asleep and a forgetting of our true home. And we go throughout life. It reminds me that the only really great tragedy, death is not a, a tragedy from perspective of faith because it's just passing into another realm of existence on the way of further progression. The real tragedy is when we bury somebody who never truly lived, when we bury somebody who never truly awoke to the meaning of their life, to somebody who never truly lived a life of passion and commitment and love. When we bury somebody who never truly lived, then this life is a true tragedy in my view. All right, and then you draw some more parallels with another feature of the story. So we talk about breathing. So the first act of every human life is taking in a breath as a baby and you're born. And so as in Adam, God breathes life into him. You say that it's interesting that this very act that we do, you say we dare to trust the world by accepting what the other, meaning, you know, this whatever is not us, into our bodies to give us life itself. So it's kind of this symbolic act of Without allowing connection to everything else, this you know world, you're going to die. And so you have to breathe it in. You know, we come into this life already in the life and pain of another. 
And every breath we take was not created by us. It's a sheer grace and a gift. And it was created by the world before we got here. And so when we breathe, I mean, you know, babies don't give a thought to breath. And I don't know that it's really an act of trust. I don't know that there's enough cognitive awareness to have trust in the sense that we usually use the word. But it's a necessity of our lives that we are connected to what is other than us as the very means of our lives. Every breath that we take, every bite of food that we eat, every reality about us, we can never live a life all alone because we take our lives already from another. And so life is a matter of interconnection, interrelatedness. And already embedded into us is the DNA of our parents, the history of our families, and the reality of who and what we are at the time we enter into the world. And we can't shake this. We cannot, no man is an island. Nobody can be solely man all alone in a garden. All right. And then the next topic with Adam and Eve is, of course, the fall, the fall of mankind, as it is sometimes called. So in the classical tradition, school of thought, there's, you know, a giant in the room named St. Augustine. And St. Augustine, we've talked about previously on the podcast, but he's probably the most influential thinker on the classical view of God in, you know, the history of that thought. So for him, the fall, he developed kind of a doctrine of having the fall be this point where mankind screwed everything up. So God created this beautiful, perfect paradise, and it was supposed to be great, and then, you know, Eve got tempted and partook of the forbidden fruit and therefore ruined it, and then got Adam to take of the fruit and then ruined it for everyone, and that's why we're in this terrible state, that's why there's evil in the world, that's why bad things happen. God tried to make this great, perfect world, and we somehow messed it up. But you point out, See, the central challenge for the Augustinian way of looking at things is to explain how a creation which God created to reflect his perfection could suddenly and inexplicably go wrong. Because, for example, obviously, you know, Augustine believed in foreknowledge and the, and the perfection of God and all that stuff. So it's like, that's weird. A perfect God with foreknowledge somehow didn't foresee this happening. Anyway, you say, however, in Joseph Smith's writings, the choice made by Adam and Eve in the garden was not a wrong choice, it was simply a choice. For Joseph Smith, the so-called fall is not a disaster, but an opportunity. So if you would, just kind of talk about why that difference is significant in Christianity in general. It is set up so that we make choices, and it is set up so that God honors our choices. The very point of human existence is that we are left free to choose, and God gave us our choice. So one of the very central points of the garden story is that Adam is given a choice. He can either stay in the garden or he can leave the garden. It's up to him. And whatever he chooses is his choice that God is going to honor. And God has a plan for whichever way he chooses. And extremely significantly is the way that God has set it up in love that if we make a choice, there are consequences but there are no final consequences. Every person is in process. Nobody's ever done. And so the whole point of the atonement is that we don't get to say that at a certain point this person's done and we can judge them and that's final. You know, there's no person who's just finally left as, as totally in sin and irredeemable. And there's no person who is guaranteed through some kind of predestination or some kind of grace that would guarantee salvation that they can't fall. 
there is always the fact that we are essentially free beings. When I say essentially free beings, I mean it's impossible that we be the kinds of things that we are and we not have choices to make because the very essence of what we are as an intelligence is a being able to make free choices. It's the very essence of us. And so the central part of this story, God has given us our freedom. And when Adam makes a wrong choice, he thinks it's a wrong choice. The fact is, it isn't a wrong choice. We'll talk about that a lot more later. But as we said, for Joseph Smith, Adam's choice is not a disaster. It's not even a fall. It's part of the plan. And God has made provision for it. And it is the intended way forward. And so it's not a wrong choice. It's just a choice. And it's the same for all of us when we make choices. None of our choices are a final, ultimate disaster. It's never the case that everything is lost. We always have more choices to make. All right, yeah, and in the Book of Mormon, it likes to hammer that point home that it was good, you know, because if they, I think in Second Nephi 2, it says, you know, like, if they remained in the garden, they couldn't ever, they couldn't know good because they wouldn't know sorrow, therefore they couldn't tell the difference between good and bad and stuff like that. So it just emphasizes the point that, this needed to happen. It was necessary for mankind to move forward. Well, and it also emphasizes that they start out as little children. I mean, the fact is, is that they are innocent. Innocence doesn't mean a lack of culpability. One can still be culpable. Innocence simply means I don't have the experience yet to be able to appreciate the consequences of my choices, and I'm not yet accountable. This is an important point of the story. So you point out that in Mormon teachings, the transgression, as it's called, not a sin of Adam and Eve, is more like breaking not an arbitrary rule, but just a rule of command, meaning like, hey, don't do this just because that's a rule we made up, as opposed to breaking like a moral truth, absolute rule, such as like, you know, don't kill someone as opposed to don't cross the street when the light's red. And it's even more than that. I mean, he brings them into the garden and says, look at all this beautiful vegetation and all these trees, and every single tree here, you can eat the fruit except for one. You can't eat that fruit, and it's like telling a little child, okay, I'm going to leave the home right now, and whatever you do, do not get up on the counter, look at the second shelf, and move the boxes that are in front of the cookie jar, and get a cookie that's inside of it. Don't do that while I'm gone, which is enough to say, I fully expect that you're going to get up there and get the cookies when I'm gone. So, in your view, is because before, you know, we could draw a pretty direct parallel to like maybe a pre-existence and then coming into this life, but is there any parallel between this transgression, if you will? Because I understand the eating of the fruit could mean like then we basically chose to come to this life and have these experiences and learn the consequences of our choices. But is there anything to like God commanding us not to do that? Do you think there's anything to like maybe God sat there in the pre-existence like don't go down to earth, whatever you do, or obviously it breaks down a little bit at that point. There's a significant statement made in in both the Book of Moses and at a point in the Book of Mormon where it says, nevertheless, and this is a key point in the story, nevertheless, thou mayest choose for thyself. In other words, I've told you not to do this, but I'm still going to give you the choice if that's what you choose to do. And he's not saying, if you choose to do this, everything is lost. He's saying, this is the choice you can make. What God is saying is, I'm placing a choice before you. Choose. All right, no, that makes sense. So it's more like, more than saying, don't do this, it's saying, if you do this, there will be consequences. So I can't make you do it, you have to choose to do it. I mean, and put yourself a bit in the drama, there's no way they can really appreciate the consequences of their choices. They're like little kids. They've never experienced death, they've never seen death, 
when God tells them that they will surely die, what could that possibly mean to them? They have no concept of death. And so when they're told what the consequences are, it's like a lot of our lives, the consequences aren't concrete for us. We don't have a real understanding of what they are. And it's only by living and experiencing the consequences that we can really appreciate the consequences of our acts. All right. So we kind of cleared up that isn't necessarily a sin. That's just a choice they made. However, you do point out then you say, well, if we look at more closely at the story, so that wasn't the first act of sin, but they did engage in the first act of sin when they freely chose to hide themselves from God for all sin consists essentially in breaking or injuring some relationship. Well, let's go back a little bit. Why isn't it a sin? I mean, they've been commanded not to do it. It's a transgression, which means it breaks a word that God has given them, but it, it's not a sin. They're not morally culpable for it, and that's because they didn't appreciate the difference between good and evil until after they had partaken of the fruit. What that means is they're not morally responsible because they can't appreciate what it means to be morally responsible. The fact is, is they are like little kids, and so they're innocent in the choices that they make. We all begin life this way. We all begin life by making choices that will have consequences for us later in life. Some of them will be really strange choices about ourselves and what we think about ourselves and what we choose about other people. And they'll create issues for us later in life. But the fact is, is we choose into these kinds of things very innocently, not really appreciating or being in a position where we're morally accountable. In other words, what we're doing, we do in a morally innocent sense. And so the logic and structure of the story is that when they eat the fruit, they can't be morally accountable. They can only have consequences. So God's told them what the consequences are, but it's not something for which they're morally culpable. So yeah, that is a strong distinction. I think everyone kind of intuits that, obviously, if you don't know the difference between right and wrong, as, as a child, for example, when they do something, we don't yell at them or put them in prison. We're like, okay, well, they just they didn't know better. But as we grow and we come to understand the differences between good and evil, then when we act, it is a morally significant, I guess you could say. Yeah, so there's, there's no sin in the world, Jim. Eating the fruit does not bring sin into the world. This is essential to know. And of course, it is Eve who, who eats the fruit. And it's kind of like, I mean, for guys who have been around women for any significant amount of time, like having mothers or having wives or even daughters, there's a recognition that women have this kind of, we call it women's intuition, but they have this sense of being able to get it. Women experience the world very differently from men. They're connected to it in a different way. I would refer to the fact that the corpus callosum, or the body that joins the two hemispheres of the brain for females, is in general nearly twice as large as it is for men, which means there are two hemispheres actually talk to each other. They do much better on nonverbal communication tests. They're always verbally superior to men. Well, always. But generally, they, they're, they're far superior. And so women have this kind of sense of the world. They're able to relate to the world and get the clues and messages in the world in a way that a guy doesn't. And it's quite significant that Eve understands the purpose of life. She just intuits it. She gets it. She has to explain it to Adam. He doesn't get it until it's explained. All right. And so, yeah, kind of having that intuition about this is what needs to be done, they go ahead and do that. But then you, you kind of talk about there's the serpent in the story, and the serpent comes in and tells them some things about what will happen if they partake of this fruit. And I think a lot of people don't realize that what he's telling them has a truth mixed with a lie. He's not just straight up lying to them. He says, if you eat of the fruit, you'll become as the gods, knowing good from evil. 
And that's true. That's not a lie. That's exactly what will happen. However, you say Satan's lie is not easy to detect. It is true that by eating the forbidden fruit that Adam and Eve shall be as the gods, it is true that despite mortal death they shall live. However, it is not true that they need to know both good and evil to be as the gods. What they need to learn is not how to do evil as well as good, but how to distinguish good from evil. As Lehi stated in 2 Nephi 2, 26, they have become free forever, knowing good from evil. Yeah, so the key word in that phrase is from, knowing good from evil. In other words, being able to distinguish the two. Before partaking of the fruit, which is a symbolic act, of course, of experiencing human lives, what they're doing is making choices, but they really don't appreciate. They can't distinguish good from evil. They don't understand it. It's only when that distinction can be made that a person becomes morally responsible. So I guess just to clarify, you point out that you don't have to sin to learn, but is there a reason behind that? Like, are you trying to say that you can learn everything in this life without actually having sin? Because like everyone's going to sin to some degree, but you're, I guess you're trying to go against the philosophy that some people are like, well, you know, I had to go do drugs and sleep around to understand that I didn't like it or something. Yeah, I mean, it's not that we have to engage in every evil possible so that we can appreciate the difference between good and evil. Experiencing evil is not what life is about. Distinguishing good from evil and making choices that will facilitate our return to God and the healing of the broken relationship are what life is about. Then you point this out about that fact. So we've talked about what the actual sin was, what the lie was. And so you say, Adam and Eve choose without understanding what future their choice holds for them. For they make the choice for the very purpose of gaining the understanding of what is to, what it is to be mortal. So, you know, they can't understand what it is to be mortal without actually being mortal, so they do that. They choose to leave God's presence and live as mortals, as we all have. But they cannot grasp what such a life means. Thus, they are choosing in trust, without knowing what life concretely holds for them in the future. And so, again, we can draw the allegory back to, we talked about this a little bit in our talk about theodicy, but each of us, before we came to this life, was presented with a plan, and maybe God could explain a certain degree of, like, you know, what would be going on down here, or what type of things could happen, but each of us were like, well, I mean, I don't have any concept of what that could mean. You say I could experience sickness, death, and rejection? Well, I have no concept for that. So, you say, ultimately, that comes down to trust in God. And so, for them, as well as each of us, it comes down to believing that God's plan is going to ultimately work out for our good, that the experiences in this life will benefit us in some way. Well, it's the same thing with every day of our lives. We don't know how the future is going to turn out. We don't know everything that will happen in the future. I mean, every single choice we make that's significant for our lives, we don't have enough information to make the choice. When we choose to marry a person, we don't know enough about them. And even if we knew enough about them, they might change in the future in ways that we can't predict. We don't know enough. We'll never have enough data to know that the choice that we've made is secure forever is the, is the right choice. Things change. And we'll never have enough data about the kinds of things that we need, so we have to trust. It is a part of our human condition that without trusting, we can't move forward. Without trusting, we can't live life. Without trusting, we can't have relationships. The word for trust in Latin and Hebrew and Greek is the same word. Faith and trust are the very same word. They're different in English, but to trust a person is to have faith. And so when it's said that we have faith in God, it doesn't mean, oh, we should believe that God exists. 
where we believe that everything's going to, to, you know, if I do this, I'm going to get rich. It means that I trust that ultimately God is going to be there for me and that he has my best interests at heart. Sometimes that's very, very difficult to believe. I suffer sometimes from what I call Abraham syndrome. It's like, well, I've seen how you treat your friends and I'm not really impressed. And if I've got to go through all this crap in order to learn what you've got there for me to learn, it's like, I'm just not sure I want to do that. Ultimately, what it calls for is the trust that really God loves me so much that whatever I'm experiencing is ultimately going to be for my good. And so we're sent into a life where ultimately it's a no-lose proposition. We're sent here to have experiences, but the very purpose of life is to have experiences, so it's a no-lose proposition. If we come here and we have experiences, it doesn't matter what the experiences are. Every experience that we have can be for our benefit and good. I know that sounds amazing and maybe even naive, but it's true. All right, let me read these last two quotes, and then you can kind of sum up with whatever you want. So, according to Joseph Smith, we have all made the same choice as Adam and Eve. We were not thrown into the world without our consent. We are not here to be punished for an act that we had no control over, referring to the fall. We are here because we chose to confront the challenges inherent in growth and life itself. Now, this is a very important fact because ultimately, if you're going to be a parent, you're going to have kids who are going to yell at you and scream at you someday. I didn't choose to be born. Truman Madsen pointed this out in a philosophy class I had, where he said, but in Mormonism, you did choose to be born. So when your kids say that, you just look at them and say, yeah, you did. Not only did you choose to be born, you chose the very family you were born into. So, you know, stick that in your pipe and smoke it. All right, then you go on to say, referring back to what you kind of talked about a minute ago, you say, God does not set up a lose-lose or a win-win proposition, where if we make mistakes along the way, we are lost. Rather, he's only interested in a win-win proposition. The purpose of life is to learn from our experiences here, and by merely experiencing this life, we will fulfill our purpose in life. For all these things shall give us experience and shall be for our good. You might notice that's an echo from DNC 122.7 when Joseph Smith is in Liberty Jail. And, you know, he's like, man, everything's terrible and I don't understand this. You've forsaken me and the people that I love are being persecuted. And then God comes back to him and basically says that. And that has to be a stark reminder for Joseph Smith because the experience he's in is excruciating. Every minute in there probably seemed like four or five days to him. And it didn't feel like to him that every experience was for his good. But his experiences in Liberty Jail have blessed generations and left us with this absolute refined gold in his experience in the scriptures that he's left to us. So, you know, sometimes it's a matter of saying, I can't see what God is up to, but I trust him. And sometimes, often much later after the experience, we look at it and we go, oh, that's what God was up to. You know, I've tried to do this with varying success, I guess, but up until a couple of weeks ago, I taught primary, and I remember when we had this lesson about that particular scripture, and kind of it touched on the problem of evil as far as you can go into it in primary. But it had a, a novel idea of looking at every experience and trying to see what you can actually learn from it. So it gave you different scenarios. It's like, well, let's say you, for you know, some reason, you get really sick and you're suffering a lot. It's like, well you know, I guess I can look at that and first appreciate health if it ever does return to me quite a bit more and then maybe feel empathy for others. And so I can go and maybe serve others because I understand their pain. Or it's like, hey, you know, what if what if you are short on money at some point in your life and you're poor? It's like, well, then it gives me an opportunity to 
learn to value the things that I have and then a chance to learn how to be financially responsible and things like that. So if we look at life that way, that no matter what happens to us, I mean, I guess it's easier said than done, but you know, if you, within a certain degree, if you are still like conscious and able to have some semblance of life, but no matter what happens to you, if you try to say, what can I learn from this and how can I use it to make me a better person? I think that we're fulfilling the purpose that we're sent here for. Yeah. And I think it's a very important question that will always serve us if we ask it. I'm going to give a very personal reflection here. My own father passed away a month ago today. And it reminds me of something that my mom said. She's had cancer several times. And she said to me one time, she said, you know, it took getting cancer to find out what a wonderful man I was married to. And I recognized in that, that there was this refiner's goal, this amazing link of love between them because of what they had suffered together and the kind of opportunity it gave dad to show who he really is in the essence of his caretaking love. And it gave mom a chance to fully appreciate what dad was doing and and the kind of person that he is. And so, you know, for me, the relationship between my father and my mother, of course, is very key. It's a pinnacle relationship for me and a very meaningful relationship. And so when I see that, I can see the divine purpose. Not that I'm glad my mom got cancer, but I'm glad that she learned what there was there to learn for her when she got cancer. In conclusion here, and you kind of alluded to it with this last quote, where even though we're making mistakes along the way, all is not lost because God set up this win-win proposition. So referring back to the title of the whole second half of this book, The Heart of Atonement, kind of give us a teaser to how this we are all Adam and Eve and this condition that we're all in by choice relates back to the atonement. So the denial of atonement is the commitment that we're stuck in our past, we can't change, and we get to judge people just the way they are right now. The story of Adam and Eve is the opportunity to see that life is set up to give us the ability to learn not only from our experience, but to not judge people. Because the denial of atonement is to see people as stuck in their past, not being able to change, not being able to overcome whatever it is that they're suffering with. The atonement is all about the fact that the very purpose of life is repentance. That is the ability to make a different choice and move forward. We're not stuck in our past. We're all works in progress, and that's why we can't judge people. Because if I judge a person, what I do is I stick them in their past at that particular moment and refuse to allow them to grow beyond it. And so the atonement is essentially intertwined in this story. It's a story about people who make mistakes, but they grow from it. And because they are able to grow from it, they're fulfilling God's purposes. And God's purpose is atonement. Ultimately, the whole purpose of life is to be in the kind of relationship with God that he is seeking for us. That is to heal the alienation so that we overcome the breaking that takes place because the breaking will bless us. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.